Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for this episode, Christopher Rose. More than one million Indian soldiers were deployed during the First World War, serving in the Indian Army as part of Britain's imperial war effort. These men fought in France and Belgium, Egypt and East Africa, and at Gallipoli in Palestine and Mesopotamia. But the voices of the soldiers themselves have long been lost to scholarship, which is focused more on military history, often commenting that the contribution of the Indian Army was at best auxiliary and usually disparaged as somewhat useless. Andrew Jarbo, assistant professor of liberal arts at Berkeley College of Music and at Match High School in Boston, Massachusetts, has recently published a new book, Indian Soldiers in World War I, race and representation in an imperial war. Using soldiers' diaries and letters from the home front, Jarbo recovers the voices of Indian soldiers themselves. Indian contributions to the war were significant, but it's only been in the last couple of decades that new scholarship has begun to uncover how important contributions from colonial soldiers were to both the British and French war effort. This book, published in 2021 from the University of Nebraska Press, is an important introduction to Indian participation in the war and an important contribution to the scholarship. Here's my interview with Andrew Jarbo. Andrew Jarbo, welcome to the New Books Network. Our traditional first question is, is about yourself. Uh, so tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, your academic background, and what led you in the direction of this project? Uh, great. And thanks, thanks again, Chris, for putting this together. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of liberal arts at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. I am also a high school United States history teacher at Match Charter High School, also in Boston. Um, my wife and I live outside of Boston, and I can't say just now in six. Um, I did my undergraduate work uh, at Bates College, uh, master's in teaching at Pace University, and a master's and PhD in world history at Northeastern. And to the question, what got me interested in this topic of Indian soldiers in World War I, um, I suppose suppose there's a two-part answer to that question. And I suppose the first answer to that question is truthfully uh, self-righteous indignation. Um, I've, I've always been fascinated by World War I for as long as I can remember, um, ever since I was a kid. It, it just ca- captured my imagination, and, and I read everything I could get my hands on about it. And All Quiet on the Western Front was my favorite book of all time. And when I came to graduate school, this is back in 2008, um, I knew I wanted to write about World War I, and lucky me, I got to take a class that fall semester on World War I. So, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just living the dream. And, and early in that class, I come across this photograph of South Asian soldiers marching through the streets of Marseille, France, in October 1914, on their way to the Western Front. And I saw this photograph, and I just thought, wait a minute, Indians in the trenches? I had no idea, and how come I had no idea? I I considered myself reasonably well-read on this topic, and, and no one thought to mention to me that there were Indians in the trenches. How dare they? How dare they? And, and mm-hmm. so I wanted to know more. I wanted to know 
who these guys were and what they did in the trenches, but I also wanted to know why I had never come across this topic before. And so, so that, that was my, my uh, initial impetus. Um, from there, as I began to read more, as I started to dive into archives and uncover the stories, um, I mean, just, just my, my curiosity um, would not let go. And, and what I started to uncover is that there was a story here, and it was a big story, and it was an important story. And it's a story, the story of Indian soldiers and the story of India in World War I. It, it is a story that, that it still echoes. It still echoes in our own historical present. It's a story of war and of empire. It's a story of racism and white supremacy. It's a story about, uh, it's a story about the lives that, that, that get caught up uh, sometimes in, in somebody else's ambitions or hubris or, or overreach. Uh, it's, it's a story about mass media and the shaping of expectations and what happens when people with competing expectations, um, what, what, what happens when they meet at loggerheads. And, and so just the, the more I uncovered, uh, the more I discovered that, that this is a big story and it's an important story. Um, and, and its themes, its themes are, are still, still things that we are, we are living with today. So I thought this, this is something I want to write about. This is something I want to uncover as best as I can. Last year, actually during the pandemic year, I taught a course on World War One and the colonies. And um, we, the syllabus was full of all, all sorts of articles and things. And on the first day of class, I asked the students if they noticed anything about the reading assignments. And it took them a while uh, to realize that everything that we were reading had been written in the last 20 years. Um, of course, most of them are only about that age anyway. So it took a while to register. But uh, there's been this huge explosion in scholarship that reassesses the participation of colonized people in the war. Um, now, in some cases, the topic really hasn't been touched at all until now. Uh, but in the case of India, as, as you describe in, in your intro, um, there's been quite a bit of work, although a lot of it really sort of was relatively negative. It suggested that the Indian troops were out of their depths and relatively ineffective and didn't make much of a difference in the war effort. But then here too, this trend is also being revisited. So can you tell us more about this historiographical shift and how your book fits into it? So I suppose first things first, um, India's wartime contribution was significant. Um, I would even argue was decisive. Uh, more than 1.7 million soldiers served in the Indian Army during the war. And, and maybe just for our listeners, we should clarify, this is a British-led Indian Army. Um, more than 1.7 million uh, South Asians served in that army. They deployed to every theater they served in France and Belgium. They fought in Macedonia and Egypt. They fought in Palestine and in, in Iraq and East Africa. Um, you know, they, they, were, they were everywhere that the British Empire sent troops. Um, and the topic of India in the war was an industry unto itself during the war. Uh, and I would say in the decade that followed the war in the 1920s, there was still lots of stuff, most of it self-serving, um, published by British officers associated with the Indian Army. Um, but there's a lot of stuff written about India in the war, and then it kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. And no one was writing about it for a long time. And well, you know, other things are happening, of course. There's World War II, there's independence, there's partition, and there's probably a sense that um, no one is really that keen to dig up this, this subject again. 
Um, but as you say, as you say, you know, in the last 30 years, and especially in the last 10, um, it's being looked at anew. And, and, you know, when I started down this road in 2008, um, there was not much new stuff yet. Mm-hmm. And, and happily, happily since then, uh, there are now just some wonderful, wonderful books and, and works on this subject. Uh, those by, you know, Santana Das, Radhika Singha, uh, George Morton Jack, th- those come to mind, just to name a few. There, there are some really, really good and important books on the topic. Um, back in 2014, a colleague of mine, Richard Fogarty, uh, and I, we, we published uh, an edited volume together called Empires in World War One, And that book um, laid out a couple of arguments that, that I see myself continuing and carrying forward in, in this most current book, uh, Indian Soldiers in World War One. And, and the first premise, the first argument, is that we need to put a discussion of empire at the heart of the story uh, when we talk about World War One, and especially if we're going to talk about India in World War One now. Um, and then second, we need to look for uh, connections. We need to offer comparisons um, that, that treat the world and treat the world war uh, as an integrated, if uneven, whole. So if you follow here, I did not want to do what still a lot of books about World War I, even books about India in World War I, I did not want to do what a lot of books still do, which is say, maybe treat France as the main show Uh and Mesopotamia or hospitals or prisoner of war camps, uh, treat these things as somehow sideshows or peripheral to the main event. Uh, and neither did I want to write a book that, you know, say, treated the war in France as its own discrete chapter and then the war someplace else as its own discrete and separate chapter. I wanted to show that these distant places were connected, uh, that human beings, in this case soldiers, human beings were reaching out to one another um, across these distances, you know, soldiers wrote to each other wherever they were deployed. Um, newspaper reporters, um, they themselves were, were making an effort to compare what was happening on the different fronts. So I wanted to write a book that showed that this really was a world war, that this was an imperial war, um, and that if we treat the war's whatever we want to call them, they're separate theaters. If we we treat them separately, we're actually kind of doing a disservice to the lived experience. Um, There was was a considerable deal of connection, of connection uh, during this war. So so where does my book uh, depart from from some of the the recent stuff? Um, I'd like to think that I have written a book that is, it's a story of empire and it's a story about soldiers, uh, yes, but it's also about the sometimes competing stories that people then told about those soldiers. So I'm interested, for example, in the letters that Indian soldiers penned and postmarked uh, to and from every corner of the globe. And these are, you know, these have become a popular primary source in the last 10 to 20 years. You know, I'm not the first to, to consult Indian soldier letters. Um, but I'm also interested in what the propagandists and the newspaper editors said about those soldiers. I'm, I'm interested in what ministers on Whitehall or peasants in the Punjab had to offer. And I'm interested in what people did with the things that other people were saying about the troops. So it's, it's a book about soldiers, and it's a book about the narratives and the stories that people told about those soldiers, if you follow. So 
Uh, set the stage for us just a bit, because India was a little different than some of the other colonies because Indians were actually able to join the British army, but there were restrictions and important distinctions that were drawn between units comprised of Indian troops and other units of the British army. Uh, Can you talk more about that? Sure. Okay. So first things first, at the time that the war began, so, you know, here's August, 1914, Britain's Indian Army is the empire's only professional fighting force apart from the home army, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is an army that they have spent a lot of money on and put a lot of thought into um, since 1858 when the crown took over. Um, and it is it is otherwise their only other professional fighting force uh, available upon the immediate outbreak of the war. Now, there are a few notable things that make the Indian Army um, unlike, say, uh, Britain's home army. And one of the things that should be noted up front is that the Indian Army was not open to just anyone. Um, just living in British India and being a young man um, does not make you automatically eligible for for the king's or for the viceroy's uh, service. Um, recruiters, Indian Army recruiters, only permitted men from a very narrow stratum of Indian society to join the colors. And these are the so-called martial races of India. Uh, peasants, peasants really... Um, but, but men who, according to the racial pseudoscience uh, of the time, according to British racial thinking and according to Indian Army doctrine, uh, these are the guys who have got the innate stuff needed to be effective soldiers. And what martial race doctrine means on the ground um, is that Punjabis especially are going to shoulder the brunt of the war's burden for the very simple fact that the overwhelming majority of South Asians are expressly barred from serving in the armed forces. They are not allowed to put on the uniform of the Indian riflemen called the Sepoy. They are just not allowed to. And and sure enough, by the time the war has ended in 1918, this single province in British India, Punjab, has provided more than half of the army's combatants. Um, And that is a direct result of British racial thinking and racist and racialized uh, recruiting practices. Now, with that said, once, say, a young man joins the Indian Army, um, he is subjected to a host of policies that make clear um, his separate and unequal status uh, within the empire's racial hierarchy. So, for example, um, an Indian officer serving in the Indian Army, well, his officer's commission comes from the Viceroy, the uh, the appointed executive of of the British Raj. His, His commission comes from the Viceroy. What this means is that when he deploys to a battlefield somewhere, um, he will automatically be of a lower rank than any British officer he happens to encounter whose commission comes from the king. And so this racial hierarchy is established. Um, The Indian soldier does not receive equal pay for equal work. Um, Indian soldiers and Indian officers in 1914 are subjected to harsher punishments than white soldiers. Uh, for example, for example, flogging, uh, flogging fell out of favor 
in the late 19th century as a form of punishment uh, for white soldiers. Um, but the Indian army still permits this kind of corporal punishment um, when, when disciplining uh, brown South Asian bodies. And so, so the, the Indian soldier who joins the colors, um, who, who, fights, who fights in the kings and the viceroy's army, um, is sort of reminded every step of the way of his inferior uh, status in, in the empire's um, racial pecking order. At the outbreak of the war, the Indian nationalist movement supported the idea of young men enlisting and going to fight for the British Empire. And many did, and they did so enthusiastically. Um, given the historic tensions, especially between the nationalists and the British, um, why was this the case? Why, why did they, they argue that, that young men should be fighting for the king? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, um, the Indian nationalists. And, and it, it is probably worth saying up front that one of the reasons why Indian nationalists rally to the imperial standard in 1914, which they do, they pledge their loyalty to the crown and their, their commitment to seeing the war through. Um, one of the reasons they do this is because, well, that's what they do every time uh, there's a big imperial war. So, you know, the last big imperial war is probably the South African War in 1899, and Indian nationalists uh, rushed to the defense of the empire then as well. Uh, Gandhi, for example, served as a stretcher bearer um, for, for, the, for the British army during its time in the South African War. This is what they do. The Indian nationalists in 1914 have not made the turn yet towards independence. That's going to come later. Um, we might think of them as still the loyal opposition. Um, they are reformers. They are not revolutionaries. They wanted more of a hand in imperial governance, um, they wanted Indians to enjoy self-government along the lines enjoyed by Britain's white dominions, uh, South Africa, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, they wanted racial equality for Indians uh, within the empire. Um, you know, these are the things that the nationalists are after. And so when Britain goes to war in 1914, there is a sense among India's nationalists that this is a moment for them to display their loyalty and in so doing, earn the goodwill of their imperial masters in the earnest hope that their loyalty will be rewarded at war's end. Um, it is probably also worth noting um, that when India's nationalists pledge their allegiance to the empire in 1914, um, you know, if we're talking about uh, young, middle-class, educated, urban nationalists, if those are the people we're talking about, they're not the ones who are going to be recruited and deployed overseas either, right? It, it might be easy for them to pledge their, um, to, to pledge that they are heart and soul with the British Empire. It might be easy for them to do that because it, it, it's not going to be their lives on the line. Um, so that that's worth saying too. Uh, how were they recruited? Um, I know in Egyptian history, there's often uh, accusations of coercive force used to encourage uh, particularly peasant men to enlist in the Egyptian labor corps. Was that something similar that we see in India? Um, yes. Um, although it's also important to say that recruiting practices changed. Um, as the war went 
on. Um, you know, the Indian Army really has a very narrow recruiting pool uh, when it goes to war in 1914, and the war the war churns through bodies so uh-huh. fast that replacements just cannot be found. And so recruiters really have to sort of uh, widen the net, so to speak, um, and and make villages and castes and tribes and groups of people who might have previously been excluded. Um, oh, well, you know, we've revisited things and well, now they're martial enough to serve in the military. And so now we can recruit them. Um, you know, the, the, the British expand the recruiting pool as the war goes on. We get to 1918 and you have a crisis moment, at least in the war in France, right? The German army has its big March 1918 offensives and they punch through the British Fifth Army on the Western Front. And and it, it looks like the Germans might win the war in uh, March and then April 1918. And um, the call goes out to India to raise half a million troops that year, which is just this, you know, some total that would have been unthinkable in any given year before the war. And now suddenly in 1918, you know, British administrators in India have their marching orders find 500,000 troops, just find them. And Punjab in particular, Punjab is asked, uh, Punjab is given a quota uh, to fill, and that's 200,000 troops. Well, things pretty quickly turned coercive. And one of the reasons we know that is because in 1919, uh, Gandhi, um, taking kind of his uh, directives from the Indian National Congress, Gandhi undertakes a study of recruiting practices in Punjab in 1918 and, um, and, and finds that, you know, this, this, this was coercive. Um, uh-huh. The empire did everything it could to sort of turn the screws, as it were, and get men to join the uniform. So, for example, one, uh, one example... Um, you know, a, a father uh, uh, who owed back taxes um, is hauled before a judge, and the judge sort of looks at his case and says, "I notice that you've got three sons of age who you have not yet sent to the war. Uh, we can make this problem go away if 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 your sons if your sons will join the colors." Um, tax collectors when they go to villages, uh, will bang drums to, to, you know, attract a crowd and, uh, and use their coercive leverage to, to get men to volunteer. Um, and, you know, mm. volunteers, is, you know, let's, let's put that in quotation marks, right? Um, right. But, but, you know, the, the conclusions that Gandhi draws is that, you know, the Indian Army, which boasts it is an all-volunteer army, um, has really, really crossed the line into coercion, uh, especially by that final year of the war. So let's go back to that photograph that set you down the road to this project in the first place, which was of South Asian troops in France. What were they doing there? They were they were fighting. Were they doing labor? And uh, then, of course, the the second part of this question is racially: How were they they treated in in France? Because uh, this is really, I think, one of the first times that both Britain and France had, had come face to face with colonial a mass colonial presence in the metropole. Yes. Um. They, they they are there to labor um, and they are there to fight. Um, when the war begins and the German army steamrolls its way through Belgium into France, uh, you know, the humble little British expeditionary force of some 100,000 men 
is, you know, they're going to, it attaches to the French army and it's going to do the best that it can. But the empire needs men on the Western front just as fast as it can find them. And so Mm -hmm. as soon as the war begins, uh, India is told to mobilize two divisions of infantry and one of cavalry for deployment to, to the trenches in France. And, and by late October, 1914, uh, Indian infantry, uh, they are fighting to control villages, um, uh, in uh, villages up and down the British sector of, of the Western front, which was then, you know, sort of Belgium, uh, and, and northern France. So they are there and they are fighting and they are participating in some of the thickest and heaviest stuff uh, through Christmas 1914. They, they fight at, at, at Ypres, they fight at Festibert, uh, they fight at Givenchy. Um, when, when the British Army's operations take an offensive turn in 1915, uh, they are they are participating in offensive operations at Neuve Chapelle uh, in early 1915 at Luz. Uh, later that year, um, the infantry are redeployed to fight in the Middle East at the end of 1915, but the cavalry remain in France through 1918, um, and there's an Indian non combatant battalion in France for the entirety of the war. That's a labor battalion. Um, so they they are there, uh, and they are in the thick of it. And in some ways, the Indian experience is not unlike anybody else's experience, right? And like, why should it be any different? Um, this is industrialized warfare. Uh, no one is really ready for this. No one is really built this and everyone does the best that they can drawing on whatever resources uh, they they have available Um, you know uh, Indian soldiers will will complain about the cold well so do the Germans and so do the French and so does everyone else turns out no one likes being outdoors uh, exposed to the elements in the middle of winter right um, uh-huh. And they are shot to pieces just like anybody else. And, and by 1915, you know, some of the original uh, Indian regiments to deploy to the Western Front, you know, they, they, they've, ha- they've got casualty rates exceeding 100%, just like some of the British regiments do, just like French, just like German. You know, in, in some ways, the Indian experience on the Western Front is just like anybody else's. But as you say, in some ways, it's different too. And that's because racism is dogging these guys at every turn. Um, The Indian soldiers' movements are more closely monitored and controlled uh, than those of his white comrades, for example. We know from uh, every source available that white soldiers on the Western Front um, paid for sex whenever they could, right? That, that is what they did. And, you know, the Canadians racked up the highest venereal disease rate in the war in 1915. While an Indian soldier could be arrested and flogged if his commanding officer suspected that the soldier had had thoughts about um, soliciting a sex worker. Um, and, And racism also shaped the perception of others. It shaped the lens through which, especially the British, viewed these soldiers. So, for example, when Indian soldiers did well, uh, the press, the British press, the press might say, well, it was because of their, their tiger-like prowess. You know, this was, this was what we should expect from our martial races. You'll read stuff like that. 
uh-huh. um, in, in, in the British press. Um, at the same time, if they suffer a setback, if they are forced to, you know, withdraw from a frontline trench because, say, their position becomes untenable, you know, the, the same British press that one moment praised their, quote, tiger-like prowess, you know, the same press will now cluck, cluck and say, well, you know, what, what could you expect? What could you expect from non-white troops? We shouldn't expect from them what we can expect from white troops. You know, they don't have the stuff for it. Uh, they're going to suffer in the winter. Um, you know, they're from tropical climates, which is just not true. A lot of these guys, you know, most of these guys are from northern India, many of them from the foothills of, uh, of Nepal. Um, you know, so so it's it, <laughs> racism, it, it, it's like it means they can't win. It's mm-hmm. like they can't win no matter what they do. If they do well, um Sometimes the press will say, well, they did well because they are led well by their white officers. You know, so their triumphs are attributed to uh, something, uh, something that their white officers are doing. Right. Um, and if they do poorly, it's, oh, well, you know, what, what else should we expect from, from non-white uh, men? Um, so, so yeah, that's 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 what happens to them. And in some ways, they are fighting the war just like everybody else. They are experiencing the war just like anybody else. Um, bullets and shrapnel; these things do not discriminate. Um, but British policy did, and perception discriminated, and so racism chased them at every turn. A lot of this sounds very familiar to me because of the the work I've done uh, on the war in Egypt. Uh, And one of the areas that you touch on that particularly interested me was the issue of healthcare for the troops and how this reflected those broader patterns of institutionalized racism and discrimination against the colonial troops during the war. Um, which you particularly talk about in the context of the war in Mesopotamia. Um, can you can you talk a little more about that? Yes. Um, let's say this: uh, Indian Army healthcare was separate and unequal. Okay, um, and maybe it would help to to state here too that there are white British regiments and battalions serving in the Indian army. This, this is a thing that, you know, a, a British soldier serving in a white battalion, you know, he can expect to do a rotation, uh, a rotation in the Indian army. Okay. So, so when, when the Indian army and when the government of India before the war, when they're thinking about providing their soldiers with health care, what they conclude is that white lives matter more to them than brown lives. Uh, And the government of India spends more money on healthcare for white troops. And and little surprise here, um, white soldiers serving in the Indian army before the war uh, enjoy better healthcare outcomes than, than do their Indian comrades. So, for example, the government of India is willing to spend money on hospitals, station hospitals for white troops. You know, a white soldier is, say, wounded on campaign on, you know, maybe the border of, of India and Afghanistan, and, uh, and he, he is sent to a hospital somewhere far in the rear where he is tended to and where nursing staff... Um, perform the miracles that that nursing staff perform, and you know a white soldier can can expect that. Uh, an Indian soldier cannot. The thinking in the Indian army is, well, we'll bring we'll bring the hospital to the soldier, uh, and so Indian soldiers quite naturally have far inferior facilities. Um, they have to provide their own nursing 
and bedding. And this, of course, is going to lead to the spread of contagion. Um, and so the British Indian Army's healthcare system before the war is separate and it is unequal and it is wholly, wholly, wholly unprepared for what it is going to be called upon to do in World War I. Uh-huh. Now, Indian soldiers deploy to France. And there is a sense among the authorities in London that all eyes are watching this experiment. And home authorities sense that there's a propaganda opportunity here. If Indian soldiers could be provided good and equal health care, well, that'll play well for Indian audiences. It'll play well for British audiences, too. So when Indian soldiers deploy to France, uh, their health care immediately gets an upgrade. Um, and Indian soldiers in France receive excellent health care. By, by all measures. Now, you know, there's this, this is still sort of colonial medicine. This is still, um, maybe we'll call it industrial medicine. You know, the goal of healing these bodies is so that as many of them can be returned to the front lines as possible, right? Um, so, you know, this is healthcare with, uh, with imperial, um, with, with, with wartime goals, uh, in mind, but by all measures, the healthcare that Indian soldiers received in France saved lives. It did. No such upgrade took place when Indian soldiers deployed to fight the war in the Middle East in uh-huh. 1914 and 1915. Um, in fact, in some cases, um, British commanders sent Indian soldiers into the field on campaign into battle, having made absolutely no preparation, none at all, to care for the wounded that such a campaign would necessarily produce. This happened especially in late 1915, really as ambition gets the better of everybody's better judgment. The Indian army is ordered to advance on Baghdad um, when no preparation really has been made for that kind of intensive campaign. And, and when, when the Indian Army's advance is, is stopped uh, at Tessafon in November 1915, about 100 miles or so shy of Baghdad, um, and thousands upon thousands of bodies are shot to pieces, um, they discover... Um, right when you don't want to discover these sorts of things, they discovered that literally nothing had been done. Nothing had been done to prepare for the wounded. And and the defeat at Tessifan turns into a complete and utter debacle when the Indian 6th Division, about 12,000 soldiers, we're talking here, 12,000 soldiers, then dig in uh, for a siege at Cut and are surrounded and cut off from the rest of their army. Um, the two Indian infantry divisions that had served in France are hurriedly deployed to Iraq for a rescue operation, and they are thrown into battle in January of 1916, even before their medical equipment has been unloaded from ships in the Persian Gulf. They are sent into battle with nothing, nothing at all to back them up, to support those who are hurt and wounded in the process. And, and it, it takes uh, the, the, you know, a, a system that was already buckling, just breaks completely. Um, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people died unnecessarily. Right. If, if, if medical arrangements had been made, if the in, if Indian Army healthcare was not itself a racist uh, institution, um, thousands of people 
might not have gotten, right? They might have received the life-saving health care uh, to which they were entitled. So you're touching here on many of the uh, very unpleasant aspects of the war and also some of the the conditions that Indian soldiers had been dealing with, not only during the war, but uh, as part of their um, experience in the Indian army generally. And one of the, the interesting things that you talk about here that's sort of an appeal to that sensitivity came from the the Ottoman Sultan toward the beginning of the war when he used his status as the Caliph of Islam to call for a global jihad incumbent upon the world's Muslims, the majority of whom at that point were living under British colonial rule, uh, to rise up against their colonial oppressors. The call was generally unsuccessful at convincing Muslim subjects of the British Empire to revolt, but it was not entirely a failure. And as you describe, it also provided an interesting out for Indian prisoners of war, as you describe in your fifth chapter. Can you tell us more about this? Yes, yes. So the the Sultan's call to jihad, um, you know, this happens in November of 1914. And as you say, you know, Britain is the world's foremost Muslim power. And uh, if you look at the Indian vernacular press uh, in November 1914, what does India's press have to say about this? Um, you know, most most newspapers, even those with you know, uh, say Muslim readership, you know, sort of shrug it off. You know, well, 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 okay, so the, the the Sultan did that, but what does Turkey have to do with me? Uh, the answer is kind of nothing. Um, so, so you know, the 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 Sultan and and by way of you know maybe the German Kaiser too, they're, they're hoping that this might destabilize British rule in India, but eh, its its effects within British India are are probably close to nothing. But 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 you know here's an important part of the story too. You've got these inter-imperial rivalries that shape the ground upon which Indian soldiers maneuver during this war, and it provides them a very interesting out. Um, in 1915, for example, a group of soldiers serving on the Western Front, um, but men not from British India, but from independent Afghanistan, and, and the British Army, you know, recruited a little, uh, a limited number of troops from from Afghanistan, serving Indian Army. Um, a group of some 24 soldiers who had already been in the thick of things. Um, already seen many of their friends and comrades shot to pieces. Uh, And in March 1915, it's pretty clear a big offensive operation is coming again. Well, these guys have in hand these propaganda leaflets the Germans have dropped over their trenches, um, announcing the call to jihad. And they gamble that their chances of survival are better with the Germans than they are with the British. And so one night in March 1915, these 24 guys desert to the German trenches and they get there and, you know, however they are able to communicate this, what they are able to communicate is that, oh yeah, you know, we know about the jihad and we, we you know, we're, we're eager to sign up for this and we're eager to bring uh, holy war to the gates of India and, and kick the British out of India, you know. They're, they're telling the Germans kind of exactly what the Germans want to hear. Uh-huh. And and they are taken to this, the Germans, the Germans prepare this propaganda prisoner of war camp uh, south of Berlin at a place called Zossen. And that's where they keep, you know, captured Muslim prisoners of war. And it's a propaganda camp. They're trying to get these guys to renounce their allegiance to the British or to the French or to the Russians. They've got lots of soldiers there. And, and they're trying to get them to re-enlist in the Ottoman army and go fight under Ottoman leadership or German leadership uh, in the Middle East. Well, of these 24 Afghan soldiers who deserted 
uh, in March 1915. Well, all of them end up in this so-called Indian battalion that the Germans and the Ottomans form. And they are sent off to the Middle East. And most of them then just kind of disappear with money and with guns and with anything else the Germans have provided them. Um, you know, they sort of exploit, uh, <laughs> they sort of exploit the goodwill of their imperial master's enemies as far as they can. And then, and then they look out for number one at the end of the day and, and they try to find their way home. Uh, and some of them make it and some of them don't. Um, but, but yeah, this, this rivalry, this war, and this call to jihad appears to offer some troops an out, a way to really uh, save their own necks. As was the case with a lot of the other colonial peoples who'd been hopeful that participating in the war would give them leverage toward... Uh, especially after Woodrow Wilson, the American president, made his call for the colonized nations of the world to have self-determination. India and the South Asians found themselves disappointed at the end of the war, although India was able to have a seat at at the Paris Peace Conference. Can you tell us more about this shift uh, from the optimism that the war started with and how it set the stage for further tension during the interwar period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Indian nationalist politics uh, develop over the course of the war. Um, you know, Indian national politics are sort of split into two camps. There are the moderates and there are the extremists. And the moderates are holding the reins in 1914. And by 1916, 1917, 1918, there's kind of a changing of the guard. And and people who had previously been kind of out-exiled extremists, um, Annie Besant, Talak, for example, now they're kind of... um, more holding the reins of the Indian nationalist movement. So, you know, Indian national politics um, um, those who were considered extreme in 1914, their positions are more the mainstream, if you will, by 1918. That being said, Indian nationalists still cast themselves as the loyal opposition. And so when disappointment happens, it actually happens very, very late in the game, arguably after the war is over. Because as you say, you know, the, 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 the Paris peace talks begin um, and, and the Indian nationalists are trying to get their voices and their demands and the things they've been hoping for. Really what they want is dominion status, like what like South Africa, Canada has, Australia, New Zealand. Really what they want is dominion status. Um, they're trying to press those claims in Paris. They are pressing those claims unsuccessfully. That's disappointing. But then the real break seems to be in February, March, April 1919, when the government of India announces that um, the wartime um, suspension of civil liberties uh, is going to continue indefinitely into the quote-unquote peacetime. And these are called the Rolat Acts. And this is really when um, Indian nationalists send up the alarm. Uh, Gandhi, for example, had been a very outspoken supporter of the empire, a supporter of the war effort as late as autumn 1918. 
uh, until he, he he's, he's a propagandist for the empire. He's a propagandist for the army. He's giving pro-war, uh, pro-empire speeches as late as autumn 1918. But then these rollout acts happen. Um, the suspension of civil liberties is going to continue into peacetime. And it is then in February, March 1919 that sort of Gandhi takes a decisive turn. And, and determines that he is going to oppose these and organizes a nationwide hartal, a general strike in March of, um, in March of 1919. And his strike kicks off. Um, and, and who do you think the government of India deploys to Indian cities to gun down demonstrators? Well, they, they deploy the Indian army. And all of a sudden, these soldiers, um, to whom the Indian nationalists had looked uh, as vehicles that might advance their cause, right? The Indian nationalists applauded the troops during the war because if the troops do well, that bodes well for the Indian nationalist cause, right? These same troops who they had applauded, uh, who they had urged, you know, they, they had urged young men to put on the uniform. Uh, the, these very same troops who they had applauded are now turning their guns on them. And that is really sort of a decisive moment. And then, of course, there's the, the massacre at Amritsar uh, in um in, uh, in in April 1919, and and it is it is when the troops open fire on demonstrators that many in the nationalist ranks this this is sort of the breaking point for them. So yes, uh, World War One heightens expectations, and those expectations are dashed. Uh, in the months immediately following the war. And for lots of people, not everyone, but for lots of people, um, especially in the nationalist movement, this, this, this is the breaking point. This is the breaking point. And the nationalists, they, they, won't, they won't cheer the troops. They won't cheer for troops anymore. Um, suddenly the troops to whom they had pinned their hopes and aspirations, now, now those same troops, they are traitors to... Uh, to the nationalist cause. So, yeah, that, that's a very important shift that happens at the end of the war. And I think it echoes what happens in a lot of the colonial setting is that uh, so many delegations show up in Paris and are turned away, um, hoping to beg for self-determination and or, or to request it. Uh, and And it really sort of sets the stage, I think, for all of those unfinished promises and, and broken promises that that come back, resurface again during the Second World War, and even some of which we're still dealing with in the era of decolonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so traditional final question, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, as little as possible. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I, I so so I guess the, the the next project is the someday project. Um, I wanna I wanna kind of go back to those Indian newspapers that I found um, and do more work with those during the you know Indian newspapers from the war years, but also Indian newspapers beyond the war years. But you know, honestly and truly, and I, I'm sure you must be experiencing this too right now. Uh, this this is a tough semester to be teaching. Um, uh-huh. A lot of my students are doing the best that they can every day, um, but are holding on by a thread. Uh, and so, you know, really, really kind of right now, my, my focus is not on research right now. My focus is on teaching, being, being you know, being the teacher that I, that I think young people need uh, right now. Young people need good teachers and dedicated teachers right now. And I, I, I'm doing my darndest to to fulfill that role uh, as best I can. Uh, I'm reading Colson Whitehead's new novel because Colson Whitehead is fantastic. Uh, I'm running lots and lots of miles um, because it's fun. Uh, but but otherwise, you know, sort of research, research is on hold at present. Yeah, I definitely understand how uh, that on all counts. 
Indian soldiers in World War I, Race and Representation in an Imperial War, is out from the University of Nebraska Press. It was published in 2021. Andrew Jarbo, thank you so much for being with us. Chris, thank you. This was a delight.